there's times that your confidence level is very low, and I can remember standing on the mound and the game's on the line going, how am I going to get out of this? You have to believe in yourself. If you don't, you got problems. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas. I'm Andy Langer. This week's episode is brought to you by Rocker B Ranch, a premier ranch venue located just an hour west of Fort Worth. They called him the Ryan Express, and across 27 seasons, where he played for the Mets, Angels, and of course, the Astros and the Rangers, he amassed 5,714 strikeouts, seven no-hitters, and 12 one-hitters on his way to first ballot, nearly unanimous induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame. He's Nolan Ryan. He's our guest this week, joined by his son, Reed Ryan, the president of the Houston Astros and a founder and CEO of both the Corpus Christi Hooks and the Round Rock Express. And this season, the Express, who played just outside of Austin, returned to AAA Astros affiliation. And both Ryans were at the Express's Dell Diamond last week for the Astros' annual pre-spring training caravan. We corralled them right after in an echoey suite and recorded this show where we discussed pitch counts, the Astros' efforts to win another world championship, and the possibility of a Major League Baseball team in San Antonio. Welcome. I walked past a statue of you to get into this park. You must pass that statue from time to time. What, what goes on in your head when you see yourself life-size in bronze? Well, you know, I, I think you've come accustomed to the fact that it's, it's just part of the surroundings here at the stadium now. But when I used to walk by it in um, Arlington Stadium and at the ballpark in Arlington, it was uh, uh, unique and it was kind of strange to see it um, for the first few times and, and over the first year maybe. You were reluctant, especially in New York, to embrace what comes with being a professional athlete off the field. And you've remained that way largely, right? Well, you know, I think it was a somewhat of a shock to me when I went to New York and coming from the background that I did and um, not being around an organization that uh, was so... Um, close as far as their fan relationship and the fans enthusiasm about the ball club and the players and so there was an adjustment to that because what it was it was somewhat of an invasion to your privacy you're used to that read now right i mean the way ball players have social media the way they are building their brands outside the team this is something you deal with on a daily basis, and it's nothing like the days that he played. No, it, it, it isn't. And, you know, for me, I got to grow up really when he signed with the Astros, our world kind of changed because his celebrity really went up kind of through all the Astros Ranger years and then on into his front office and ownership phases of life. And so I kind of grew up around it. Um, but it is evolving because now everybody has a phone. Every player wants to be their own brand, their own, you know, TV station, radio station, whatever. We have guys podcasting. We have guys with their own YouTube channels. We have players proposing to their girlfriends after the World Series on the field. It's just a whole different era. And uh, you have to embrace it because the old school mentality, you can't even stick to that anymore because 
that school's gone and you better embrace the new school and what these new players are doing because we're doing a Texas monthly podcast right now. That's how much things have changed in our world. Does baseball have a millennial problem? No, it doesn't. You know, I think what's great about baseball is that our fans are consuming our game more than they ever have before, but it's across non-traditional media. So uh, the streams are off the chart. The amount of people that play fantasy baseball, um, now what's happening with these federal regulations of sports gambling, and you're seeing lots of states now start to legalize that. Um, People are involved with the game more than they ever have been before. Now, that may not show up in traditional ratings where people on a national level are all coming together and watching one broadcast across one network for one game, but they are doing it on a nightly basis across several types of mediums, and uh, we have the numbers to prove it. Is there a sense that Houston, the fourth largest city in America, still considers itself an underdog? And maybe while that's changing with a J.J. Watt or a Harden or a Verlander, and there's these faces now that we connect to Houston sports, it still doesn't have the profile of the fourth largest city in the country. So I'd say no. I, th- I think we consider ourselves to be a power. You look at the, you know, our sports teams, uh, you know, the Rockets have been right there at the end. The Astros have been right there at the end. The Texans have been in the playoffs many, many years in a row, it was big for us to win it because you got to win one. And I think it happens slowly. But then you look up and, for example, the Red Sox have won four World Series in the last 15 years. And for 50 years, they could never beat the Yankees. And the Yankees are looking up at the Red Sox now. So I think it happens quickly. You know, it's, it's slow. And then all of a sudden you look up and you're like, hey, there's a new sheriff in town. Um, so I believe our city is one of winners and they look at the world as, hey, we should win every single year now because we have the players. Now, the reality is we still have economic challenges that the teams on the coast don't have. So we're going to have to continue to work harder. But I think that fits the narrative that you were talking about of being an underdog that we know that we have to go about it and fight for everything we have. And I think that speaks to a lot of the people that live along the Gulf Coast. But uh, it was quickly, it quickly changed the expectations once we won. Now people gauge success on World Series, not on getting to the playoffs. And you won in such a storybook way after Harvey. I mean, that's going to stay yeah, with people it, it, for it, a long time. That bought us a lot of credibility, and, and that probably gives us a little bit more leeway with the fans than, than we would have had otherwise. Nolan, when you look at what he's doing, I mean— and he's been around you from bat boy days uh, when you were playing. How much just take the baseball part out of it? As a father, how proud are you? Oh, very much so. And I, I, we really uh, are very proud of Reed and, and what he's accomplished in his business and baseball career. And uh, I really feel like that uh, with the experience that he got here in Round Rock, uh, with the express uh starting the the franchise uh building the ballpark um developing it uh and going to triple a i think uh prepared him for uh what he's doing now and and i really think that uh, he has a real passion for baseball and being in baseball and so i think that's real important well you know the other stuff was his years in arlington helped me out too because um a lot of what we do in these jobs that my dad did in Arlington 
is you're managing personalities. You're managing a lot of egos and people that have different desires. You think everybody wants to pull the rope the same direction, but it doesn't always happen like that. And so I think understanding sort of we're in it for the long term helps you make better decisions and you can lose some battles as long as you're winning the war. In your Hall of Fame speech, you talk about how you didn't know or maybe didn't realize till you were retired the pull, the sort of drag that baseball was on your family. But he turned out all right. What, how does that work? I mean, because you weren't around a lot. He was with you on home games and whatnot, and you were able to live in Texas. But you were thinking this through. Well, I think there's a lot of things that that came into play, and, and obviously uh, spending the last 14 years of my career in Texas, uh, incorporating our family life into my career, uh, them being able to spend uh, time with me on the road, uh, their mother and, and sister traveling too, uh, them being around the ballpark at home, uh, it it was all part of our life. And so the fact that uh, we incorporated my career into the family uh, atmosphere, uh, I think certainly had a lot to do with the way that all the children look at baseball and, and have a fondness for the game. Yeah, what I love about the game and really sports in general is that people – come to the ballpark to kind of leave what ails them at home or in the real world. And, uh, you know, it's an honor and a privilege to get to be in a game where people, you know, you're bringing joy to their life on a nightly basis. And baseball is also daily. And so you, when you find yourself, you know, following a player like Altuve or a team and kind of seeing the ups and downs, and it's sort of the background noise, you know, of summer in a lot of ways and of your life. And uh, it just makes for a very enjoyable existence when people come to you to try to have a good time and have the, the best moments of their lives. How has baseball kept itself that escape and stayed away from some of those issues that plague the NFL and NBA? I have my own belief. So, Dad, what do you think? I, I, you want me to start? Yeah. Really. Yeah, you know, I think it's so hard to make it in baseball. So guys get drafted either out of high school or college, junior college, or they come in internationally and they don't make much money, and they grind, and it takes them years to get to the big leagues. And so they have an appreciation for the game, number one, and how hard it is to get where they are. Where a guy in college, a lot of times in the NFL, he just comes out, and now he's at the highest level. Uh, secondly, these players come from countries, a lot of them that are not America, and they look at their home country, and they see how much opportunity is here. Why would they ever do anything to disrespect the flag or the country or anything that's given them so much opportunity. And you, you play this game every single day. There's tons of ups and downs. And so I think mentally baseball players are a lot tougher, in a lot of ways like golfers because of all the failure that's involved with golf. It's kind of the same in baseball. There's so much failure you learn to appreciate the success. And I think all that together with the traditions of take me out to the ball game and the national anthem and you know, the Americana aspect of our game. I mean, we've had like one guy ever kneel or have any issues amongst thousands and thousands of games across multi-leagues for the last several years. So I think it speaks to the game itself. I really think the the game, uh, what it takes to play the game and, and kids that come into professional baseball, 
if they're not willing to make that commitment and be a grinder, it, it's a separator. They mm -hmm. choose to do something else that wasn't what they really thought about. And you take high school and college kids, they come out of, of uh, whatever league they're in, they play Tuesdays and Fridays or Tuesdays, Friday, Saturday. And <clears throat> so it's not that grind. Well, when you sign a professional contract, you're going to work. You're signing where you go to the ballpark at three and you get home at midnight and you're expected to do certain things. And, and so it's, it's a separator for a lot of people. And so I think it prepares them and makes them appreciate when they do get to the big leagues and the opportunity they have, I think their focus is totally different. Was the big change for you? I've seen you talk about addressing your weaknesses instead of your strengths. When did that click? that what you needed to really work on were the things you weren't good at instead of getting better at the well, things you I, were. I think it was a process that you go through as, as a youngster. And, and I tell people this, that uh, I was very fortunate that I played with Tom Seaver and he came out of USC and I came out of high school in Alvin, Texas. And to be able to observe him on a daily basis as a teammate for four years and see how he went about his work and his career and the focus that he had on a career. And I can remember getting to the big leagues and just being thrilled that I was there. And then all of a sudden I didn't have instant success and I had to back up and say, I need to look at what I'm doing and what, what do I have to do um, to uh, be successful here? And <clears throat> So I think uh, being around uh, other players and observing, uh, I think there's a common thread that runs through uh, all successful players and some of the superstars in the game that, that they have that work, work ethic. And, and I picked up on that, and I thought, well, you know, I have a unique opportunity, and I was given a gift that very few people were given. Now it's in my hands to take advantage of that and make the most out of it. And so that was my mindset. And so I tried to go to spring training with the idea of, okay, I'm going to go to spring training, try to be in somewhat uh, good shape where I can go about my work, take advantage of the six weeks I was going to be down Florida or Arizona. And then while I was there, I would make a mental list of what I felt like I needed to work on to improve myself for that coming season. And so that was my approach to it. Across your career, if you had to guess, how much of it were you in pain? Physical pain. Oh, you know, as you play the game and, and you develop, you learn to live with aches and pains. But, uh, uh, you know, that's just part of, uh, of what you do, you know, and it, it it's a conditioning part of it, pushing yourself. Uh, same way with uh, knowing what discomforts you have and whether it's something you deal with and, and it doesn't affect your career or knowing that, hey, I got something going on in my shoulder or my elbow and, and I need to have it tended to. So, you know, it's all part of the uh, development aspect of it and all part of the, the experiencing uh, what you're going through and, and developing that ability to, to tie a cipher through that. But to be clear, you were the last of your breed. 
I mean, well, there's not people that can put up those numbers anymore because they don't play that many games, pitch that well, many well, innings. The, the, the game has changed in how they use pitching and stuff. And, you know, I, obviously, um, being in the old school, think that uh, there's a, uh, a lot of talent that you're not utilizing as an organization because I really believe there's, there's certain starting pitchers that can pitch more innings and uh, throw more pitches in the course of a game without jeopardizing their future. But, you know, it's a mindset, and people have to be willing to want to do that and commit to doing that and then do the work that requires you uh, to do to be able to do that. And so it's the game has changed, and people ask me about baseball. I said, well, baseball, they talk about all the injuries that we have with pitchers. And I said, that's part of that's been brought on by the game and how we use them, how we prepare them. And so um, uh, it, it just depends on what direction you want to go. Could you build a guy? Could you train a guy to pitch more? To, oh, I think. I, I mean, could that be? Oh, yes, you could do that. What you would do is, is get these kids as they come into your system and you start preparing them for that and, and talking to them about it and getting them to want to do that, but they have to want to do that and make that commitment if they're going to do it. And, you know, um, when I was with the Rangers, I felt like that if we were going to uh, start excelling as an organization, we had to get more innings out of our starting pitching because we, by all-star break, we had overworked our bullpen. And uh, we didn't have enough talent in our system to uh, come up and take the place of those people. And so that spring, I went to the, the starters and I said, look, guys, you know, I want you all to throw more innings. And to do that, you're going to have to start throwing more in spring training. You're going to have to be in better shape and you're going to have to want to do that. And they bought into it. And, and so the pitching staff started evolving into the fact that the starters were pitching deeper into the game. So, yeah, it can be done, but uh, you just don't do it overnight. Reed, when you look at these kind of sort of bigger baseball arguments. Mm -hmm. How does it affect the job you do? Oh, it doesn't really affect the job I do. Um, you know, what I find interesting about this is I don't disagree with what he's saying at all. I think there's just a lot of things in general. A lot of this starts with the youth baseball, how that's changed over the years and select games and how kids are utilized and the number of games kids play. It also filters up to each major league organization and what are the economics behind the choices and the options they have to build a roster? Uh, you know, how does it go to what they're doing with their money and other players, players, long-term contracts, short-term contracts. And so I think the one thing that's happened in the game of baseball is historically you've been able to see there's lots of ways to win. There's lots of ways to be successful you know, slugging and taking walks and having journeymen, you know, like the Moneyball book, that's one way, you know, having a team that, you know, has a lot of guys that, that get on base and are fast and bunt and play small balls away. Like over the years, there's lots of ways, but the amount of games it takes to win or get in the playoffs really hadn't changed. Nobody's going out and winning 145 games in a season now. You still, if you get 100, that's an incredible year, and it's only done very rarely. And so – I find it interesting, and I just think the game continues to evolve, and it'll probably swing back this way at some point in the future as well. But your season ended last year at the hands of the highest payroll in baseball. 
Mm-hmm. Is that a factor? Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, you, you want to be one of the top 33% to get in the playoffs. And if you look at the correlation of the teams that historically are in the playoffs a lot, uh, the higher the payroll, um, the better chance they have of getting in the playoffs. But it doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to be in because high payroll also equals older players. We're in a system where you know players are under control of the team through minimum salary and arbitration for six to seven years. And so I think what you're finding is the teams that win have that nice mix of some young players, some arbitration players, and some older players. And, you know, the best player on the on the Red Sox last year was Mookie Betts, and he was an arbitration player. And they had some other good young players, but they, they did mix it in with some free agents like a J.D. Martinez or, uh, you know, other guys that they had traded for that, uh, you know, Chris Sale or, or, you know, Nathan Uvalde, other guys. But, but if you look at that, the teams that tend to win, I think, are that nice mix of those three. Nolan, on the mound, was there ever fear? Did you have the equivalent of stage fright? No, I think very early on in your career you do because you come into a major league game and, and you don't know if you belong there or not. You don't know what it takes to be successful because you haven't been there before. So you're trying to deal with that and also throw strikes and have some idea how you're going to approach a hitter. So, you know, there's times that your confidence level is very low, and I can remember standing on the mound being in a, a situation uh, where uh, I was struggling with my control, and the game's on the line going, how am I going to get out of this? And, uh, you know, how, do you, how am I going to get this guy out? And so you learn to deal with that, and that's where I believe experience becomes a great teacher. And and uh, develops your confidence and your ability knowing that what you have to focus on and what you have to do and how you have to execute to get out of a situation like that. So that's something that people develop. Some people aren't, aren't able to develop that, and other people are. So by the end, you're fearless? I think you, you, you have a, uh, a better understanding of, of where you are and what you're dealing with and, and have – a confidence of how you approach that situation to try to get out of it. But you probably understood your body, how you felt, and then the quality of the pitch you had the longer you went, too. I mean, there was no guesswork. You kind of knew of you. Well, yeah, and you had the confidence that, that you could execute. And you have to believe in yourself. If you don't, you, you know, you got problems. What was the biggest difference between the players you faced early on and by the end? What's the range there, and how did they change? Well, I don't think that, that I saw the difference in my career of we see now with the hitters. The hitters are more aggressive. We used to see hitters, and they were believers of putting the ball in play. If you put the ball in play, something could happen. Uh, nowadays, their strikeouts are so high in the game, and they're approached – is to hit the ball out of the ballpark, and so they strike out such a high percentage of times. They don't uh, have that mindset of putting the ball in play, trying to make something happen, hitting behind the runners, uh, uh, doing the different things that, that we grew up learning how to play the game. So uh, the way they play the game is somewhat different. Not better, not worse, just different? That's the way I would put it. Now, you know, obviously I have – uh, from my background and, and the way I was brought into the game and, and learned the game, uh, 
Um, I have a problem with with uh, a hitter not making an adjustment, continuing to to try to hit the ball out, no matter what the situation is and, and uh, what the count is. Yeah, I think that's the question. It's the question that we're looking at as an industry. Um, and what my dad was alluding to was this year was, there were actually more strikeouts than there were base hits for the first time in the history of baseball. And we're averaging about a third of every plate appearance is ending in what they call one true outcome, a strikeout, a walk, or a home run. And so is glorified home run derby what the fans want to see. And I think you have smart people that have, you know, taken analytics to another level and figured out matchups and, and, you know, like my dad was saying, guys throw hard. So you're seeing things like openers now coming in, getting three outs and teams utilizing the 40 man roster by changing players almost every day to keep fresh arms in. And it's a power game. And is that the game the fans want to see? That's what we have to ask ourselves as an industry. And that's why you're hearing things like, well, we're going to, the league wants to outlaw shifting because especially for left-handed hitters, uh, you know, if they can't get a base hit because there's that many guys over on that side of the field, then they just try to hit a home run. Right-handed hitters, you know, they, they bobble it, then they still are able to beat it out a lot of times at first base from somebody in shallow left field. But in shallow right field, first base is so close, they're able to pick it up and throw them out. So those are the things we're looking at. And I think what fans want to see is they want to see the athleticism of our players. You know, I don't think we've ever had the game be more athletic than it is today with just nutrition and growth and all the things. And, you know, folks love seeing George Springer run into a wall or make a dive and catch or hit a triple. And so those are the questions the game has to ask itself, and we're doing that now. You're also getting feedback instantly on social media. Correct. So, And you're famous for having gone down into the seats and hanging out and watching the game from there and talking to people who were ticket buyers. Yep. I connect with them on a nightly basis. But yeah. now you're hearing from literally the peanut gallery. Anybody with a phone and a Twitter account. You know, you look for trends. You can't look for the one-off kook. If there's something that piques your interest, like, oh, that's unusual, then you might dig into it. But unless there's a theme there, then it's just noise, and you just ignore it and monitor the noise. No, and I'm looking at that photo of you milking a cow. <laughs> just hanging, a, it's hanging in this room we're in. You're a med. Is that farm day or what? Is, what is that? That was in Pittsburgh farm day, and that's Willie Stargell in there. And Willie and I milked against each other, and he came in second. <laughs> but you know, you used to go around, and and uh, they would have farm days in all these towns, and and uh, they'd have milking contests and egg throwing contests, and you won them all. Uh, well, egg throwing, <laughs> and uh, you know, different things that they would do, and and. Um, uh, I, they'd, they'd find some dairy, um, or milk company to sponsor it. And so, you know, they asked players to participate. And so, uh, and that, that was my rookie year. And so I went up against Willie. Putting the fun. I mean, that's something minor league baseball now does as good as anybody. How much did you learn here? that then you take to Houston? Well, I mean, yeah, we built this place, drew it on a napkin, and, and, you know, it was all trial and error the whole way. So, you know, what I love about minor league baseball is it's fun. It's what the fans want. There's a emotional connection between the players and the fans. And so we've tried to do that in Houston, tried to do it in Arlington with my dad up there. 
you know, it gets harder when you have the players association and, and the union and there's things that for obvious reasons, these guys are at the point in their career where there's going to be a lot of money made in a short amount of time and things that take away from them being able to, you know, practice their, their craft. Uh, we get it. We understand it. So I think the challenge is that balance of trying to make sure you're keeping it fun and make sure you're, you're exposing the players to the fans because at the end of the day, they pay all our salaries. And so um, I, I try to explain that every year in spring training to our guys. Also, having a dad that played, I know from a kid's perspective how valuable the off time that a player gets is with his family. And the last thing I ever want to do is be taking away a guy from his family time for something that doesn't really have a return for him or the club. And so uh, what we've done a lot of is if guys will let us use their likeness, whether it's bobbleheads or funny promotions or commercials, there's other ways to achieve what they've done with Farm Day and have fun and connect with the fans. You just have to go about it a little bit different than than having them out on the field, you know, early milking a cow. Although that would be awesome. I just don't think the union would allow us to do it today. I don't you know, know if you'd be able to do that nowadays. In, in your day, the money wasn't as good, but there were less reasons to be motivated by money. Well, you know, in those days when I broke in, I don't think that that people were motivated by the amount of money that you can make because uh, there wasn't that pay escalation like we've seen in the game in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and so uh, I think people played because of their love of the game and, and the unique opportunity that they had and, and uh, the, being uh, an adult and be able to play a game that you get paid for was very unique. It changed your life, though, as a kid from Alvin. Right away, whether you were happy in New York or not, whether you were making crazy money or not, you recognized that, though, right? Well, I did. I mean, I recognized the unique opportunity I had. But uh, uh, the first couple of years that I was in the big leagues, I had to come home as soon as the season was over and get a job to be able to survive uh, in the offseason. Uh, because they didn't pay you in the off season, they paid you during the season, and I tell people the first year I went to the Mets, the minimum salary was seven thousand dollars, and that's what I got. Well, you know, you don't live in New York for seven thousand dollars even in those days. Yeah, you know what's interesting about sitting here with with my dad is, um, you know, he came in like he said, seven thousand dollars. Wool uniforms in the World Series were all played on day during the day, excuse me, and he became, you know, the first million-dollar player really through the growth of cable television and what that money did to the system. And then today we've seen what the Internet's done to the game, some of the things we talked about earlier with uh, all of the channels, whether it be XM Radio or the licensing or the different ways that people are consuming the product. There's never been more money in the game than there is today. And so more fans equals more money, and, and it's still the majority of that goes to the players, and as it should. And, uh, you know, they are our product, and I think we're seeing some great players today. Doesn't mean there weren't great players in his day. There were. Uh, but, but now uh, I think you're seeing those guys become stars on and off the field. Is there a different approach to running a sports organization in Texas than there might be somewhere else? Do all of the Texas teams do something different? You know, um, 
I don't, I don't think so. I think at the end of the day, the, the organization, one, is going to reflect the owner, and it's going to reflect the community that you're in. And I'm good friends with, with pretty much all of the, the major league sports teams and minor league teams across the state of Texas. And there's several that, that do certain things really well, and there's others that do other things really well. And uh, they each have their own unique feel to what goes on. But I think what's consistent about the teams in Texas is for the most part, um, all of them have, have won at some point. And the owners for the most part are all people that live here that are involved in their communities, whether it's, you know, the group up in Dallas Fort Worth or the Spurs group or the Houston group, they're all local ownership. And I think when you have local ownership and people that are, you know, Texans or have business interests in the state, you're going to get a better product because people are not going to disrespect, you know, the organization or folks in their own backyard. And I think that's important. What would a San Antonio Major League Baseball team do to the current equation? I mean, that's something that gets discussed every couple of years. I think it's interesting because we have 30 teams in MLB, and if you went to 32, you could change the playoffs and you could add some different things. And, you know, sort of the wild card has been the neutralizer to a team with a bigger payroll. And 15... You know, Yankees had, I think, the highest payroll. They were 250-something, and we went in and beat them in a one-game wild card. So I I do believe that Texas will have another major league team, either in Austin or San Antonio. I mean, there's, what, four and a half million people between this Austin-San Antonio corridor. Um, You know, where would the other ones go? I think Montreal has talked about having a club, Portland, Charlotte. You know, there's some other towns. But the reality is the the Sun Belt is where the majority of Americans live today. And there's a lot of markets that don't have teams that are more prosperous, have more people, have a better business climate than some of the markets that still do have teams. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes over the next couple of years. But as a guy who has interests in Round Rock, Austin, Mm -hmm. and Houston, Mm -hmm. you'd be okay with a team in the middle? Yeah, I think you have to look and say, what does it do for the game? You know, I think the greatest challenge we have as an industry is we're in in the AL West. So our fans are having to watch our road games at 9 o'clock at night. Here, when my dad played for the Astros, the Braves were in the NL West, you know, with the Astros. So I've always believed we need to, you know, call a spade a spade and say, look, we're we're having more people watching at home on TV and on the Internet than we are coming to the ballpark. So we need to start aligning in ways that make those fans – uh, really enjoy the experience all the time. And if that could be set up where you had a division that had a couple Texas teams and then maybe you had the you know Cardinals or the Royals or somebody like the Rockies or the Diamondbacks, where now if folks are more centrally located in their time zones, uh, I think it'd probably be a better product at the end of the day. And more playoffs would be a good thing. After winning, after coming close... This season, your message is what to the fan? Um, you know what? Let's take it back. That's it. I mean, that's kind of what the message is. Our players, they're still hungry. The organization's still hungry. We have a good team. The core is all together still. And uh, we've added a few pieces. And, you know, let's go do it. So I, I think there's a hunger because when you win, our players liked all the accolades and they liked all the extra stuff that came with it. And all of a sudden, you're not world champ, and it's just a different vibe to life. And once you've had it, you want to get back and do it again. You were on the cover of Texas Monthly in 1999. 
Paul Brooker wrote the story, and at the end, he refers to you as retired, and you shoot him a look and tell him you're not retired, you just don't throw a baseball anymore. Is that still the story? Pretty much. Uh, you know, I was a retired baseball player is what I was, but I wasn't retired, and, and that's pretty much still what it is. But, uh, you know, your your focus changes and, and uh, your responsibilities and obligations change, and so you might be going in a little different direction, but you're still very involved in, in what's going on in your life. and in the businesses that you've chosen to be associated with. So, you know, retirement, no, but uh, uh, different uh, where I was in 99 to now, yes. Are you having more fun? Oh, I think so because I, I set my own schedule more and I do things that I want to do and do less things that uh, require my presence and time. In that story... Berker writes, somewhere towards the end of his 27-year career, he came to be perceived by the public as not just a great ball player, but also a great human being. That's the difference between being a celebrity and being an icon. And Nolan Ryan is the rare hero who's made it across the line. When you hear that, when you think about that, when people want to spend time with you as much as they do, what goes on upstairs with you? Well, I appreciate him saying that and... and uh... You know, I think the older I got, the more I realized the influence my parents had on me. And and I truly appreciated that about uh, how you lived your life and how you treat other people and uh, the way you view other people. And so I wanted to try to pass that on to my children. And so one of the, the things that I think I get the most satisfaction out of is seeing how my children are raising their children. And you feel very good about that. It, it makes you feel like that you accomplished what you really wanted to do. And so uh, I'm certainly appreciative of that. And, you know, I get a lot of enjoyment and satisfaction out of the fact that I'll run into uh, adults now that'll come up and tell me that, hey, you know, when I was a little boy, uh, I ran into you and asked you for an autograph and you gave me an autograph or I sent some fan mail to you and you sent a picture back. Well, we made a special effort to do those things because I felt like if you're in a position that you can be an influence on somebody, you want to be a positive influence. And uh, you hear these players say, I don't want to be a role model. I don't want to be this or that. Well, my attitude was, if you're in that position, why wouldn't you want it to be a positive, not a negative? And so that was the way I always approach it. Is that frustrating for you to deal with people who don't have the same work ethic your father had? No, not really. <laughs> actually, it's, it's kind of liberating, actually. You know, um, so everything he said, obviously, he's my dad, and he and my mom did a great job, but I feel that way as as well, and we're blessed to be in this game to get to do that. So when I go talk to guys about whether signing autographs for kids or, or making an appearance or just treating people like you should be treated, if they ever say anything to me, I'm like, hey, my dad played 27 years, and he's in the Hall of Fame, and he was first ballot, and uh, he never said no to that. He never, you know said, no, I'm only signing two items, you know? So it's kind of hard for those guys to look me in the eye and go, oh, okay, yeah, you know, 
you're not correct. And so it's nice. I call it liberating. And when I have to use it, I don't like to go to that card all the time. But if he can do it, you can do it. You call him for legitimate advice how often? Oh, uh, every other day, probably. Yeah, we talk a lot. And uh, my son and my brother, the four of us are real tight. And I've grown to appreciate him even more for the job he did in Arlington and how many ways he was pulled on as a player and pulled at as an owner and a president of a major league club because everybody wants something from you all the time. And so being in this job has given me enough of a sneak peek to say, mm, man, now I know why he feels like he feels about some of those things because there just comes a time where the last thing you want to do is talk to another stranger. You just want to go to your house and see your wife or your kids or go sit down with your dog and watch TV or do something that doesn't involve the game of baseball or the general public. And that's not to say that I don't love this business because I do, but there just comes a time where I always say, I just, I need a break from people today. Is your legacy complete? We know what you did on the field at this point. Have you painted that whole picture? Well, you the know, way you're going to be remembered is I don't really think about those things. I don't think about my life, but uh, I think when you talk about a legacy, I think as far as baseball is concerned, it probably is. You know, now what happens in the remainder of my life, it's hard to say. You know what that might be, and and what that uh, may contribute to any legacy that I have. I'll answer that for him. It's no, because the other day somebody came up and said, a, a kid, hey, is that Nolan Ryan, the hot dog guy? So they don't even know him as a baseball player. He's just the <laughs> hot dog guy now. But all kidding aside, you know, that's what's neat about him is that he's had so many phases of his life and reinvented himself or dove into businesses or to whatever it was. Uh, I got to say, no, I don't see him just sitting around and doing nothing. I've got this weird theory that he's the Willie Nelson of baseball. <laughs> is is that crazy as somebody i think it's a compliment i don't think it's crazy no i, th I mean you know people have a lot of respect for willie and and what he's accomplished in his life and his career and, and his stamina and his desire to continue to perform and and write music and do the things that he has and so i, I would say if somebody compared me in that light i'd be honored who doesn't love willie I don't think I've ever met anybody that doesn't love Willie, you know? All right. Thank you both. Thanks, guys. Thank Appreciate it. You'll find the Round Rock Express's schedule and tickets at roundrockexpress.com. And the Houston Astros? HoustonAstros.com will get you to their schedule and tickets. This week's podcast is brought to you by Rocker B Ranch, a premier ranch venue located just one hour west of Fort Worth. Sprawling over 320 acres, this venue features endless activities surrounded by the beauty of the Palo Pinto Mountains. From a luxurious spa to a sparkling pool and even three different baseball fields, Rocker B Ranch is the perfect destination for any wedding, reunion, or business retreat. Check out rockerb.com for more information. We're always available at texasmonthly.com where you can find our latest issue featuring our annual Bum Steer Awards and my profile of country radio superstar Bobby Bones. And if you like what you heard here, maybe consider subscribing to the National Podcast of Texas wherever you found us, sharing it on social media, or perhaps even leaving a recommendation on one of those services. 
I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next week.